Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Heathers. At long last, we have finally reached our final destination in the summer of Winona. Be it we still have the Winones, the official prestigious award ceremony to go, but <laughs> our last official stop on the summer of Winona as we travel back to 1989 for what has, in modern times, not the... Uh, Chaplin film, but the actual <laughs> modern times holds a fascinating uh, cult classic status as um, one of the great dark comedies. And that being Heather's, the Winona Ryder and Christian Slater making his Contrarian's debut. Long overdue, but he's here to be as Christian Slaterly as humanly possible. It is impossible to get more Christian Slater than Christian Slater gets here. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we kind of we did a little bit of extra work. We've been working overtime here on the Contrarians over the past month to make sure this was included because this this was kind of on the chopping block, if I remember correctly. Right. It was uh, the the closest we got to a, a sort of commitment was saying that even if we ran out of time before the summer of Winona, we would do Heather's at some point. But yeah, just making sure we got it in though um, during the sanctioned period of the summer of Winona. Yeah, so so it qualifies for the Winonis. It it, it managed to fit within the window. Uh, it has had its uh, one week theatrical run, and now it qualifies. It can be nominated. So um, Glenn Shaddix is eligible for best supporting actor in the Winonis twice. Oh, that's right. Shit. I was like, he's returning, but he's returning not just to the Contrarians, but to the summer of Winona. Yeah, yeah. He's double dipping. Um, within the same time period, too. Yes, that's this is I I recognize the name before I figure out who the actor was. You know, the, the, the credits were popping up and I was like, Glenn Shaddix, that sounds like somebody that we've talked about recently. Oh, I didn't and even then... see his name. Just when he popped up on the screen, I was like, Otho, he's back. Um but Man, Julio, question for you. Could you tell this movie was made right after MTV started picking up some traction? <laughs> uh, no, because, uh, see, this is one of those cultural barriers that we have every now and then where I, I was not in the States when MTV became a thing. So when I think MTV, it doesn't really like overlap with the 80s culture for me. Oh, it really? It overlaps with 90s culture. Yeah. Ah. So... Uh, which makes something like Heather's even more fascinating. Well, it's, it, it's almost like looking into an alien world or like an, an alternate <laughs> timeline 
that I, I didn't really get to experience, but I can recognize most of the elements anyway. To be fair, MTV was in existence for the better part of a decade when this movie came out as they launched in 81, I believe. But I, I think at one point they even say MTV generation in the movie. So it's <laughs> things like this just drip with that whole MTV culture resentment and clearly comes from a place of someone trying to defend said culture. And I, I guess Madonna still would have been the hottest thing in the world because she's referenced quite a few times in this movie. Yeah, she gets name dropped at least twice, which, I mean, 80s, sure. Well, tying in together her and MTV, for me, like peak Madonna always is 1984 Video Music Awards like a virgin Madonna. That's like, I, I think I've even brought that up on this podcast before. But like, fucking Dan Aykroyd introduces her. She comes out on top of a wedding cake and like starts stripping off her wedding dress. And then she starts like humping the stage and then she just like finishes and it's just dead silence. And then the guy comes over the PA and he's like, coming up next, Crosby, Stills and Nash. Um, so that's the 80s MTV for me. This is a bit outdated. 89, I'm trying to think who would have been the hot in excess maybe. Would in excess have been hot at the time? I don't know. You're, you're from Peru. You wouldn't know these things. I no, what wasn't y'all, in y'all had in just Peru. gotten the Beatles at that point in Peru, right? <laughs> uh, we were still on the Oneaters. We hadn't even made it to the Beatles. The Oneaters, tremendous reference, bringing it all around. <laughs> so, speaking of Glenn Shaddix and MTV and all these themes and people returning to the podcast, we also have uh, screenwriter Daniel Waters and Michael uh, Lehman returning to the podcast, both from. Julio, do you know what we previously covered that they collabed on? No. Hudson Hawk. Wow. Uh, I couldn't have. The movies are so different. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they I don't know if these are the only two collabs. No, no, no. no. They also did um, Airheads together, which I remember praising on the um, uh, Hudson Hawk episode. And uh, Mr. Waters, the screenwriter, um, also wrote the screenplay for Batman Returns. So there you go. Mind blown. (laughs) (laughs) Just just when I was about to ask you, so how do you see the through line between those three movies? Uh, You know, Heather's Hudson Hawk, Airheads, and then you throw Batman Returns at me. That's And then if I can throw something even more in there, Michael Lehman, the director, also went on to direct My Giant in 1998. Wow. So... We're just all over the place. <laughs> Billy Crystal is always a wild card on anyone's filmography, so that that doesn't really surprise me. All right, so bringing it back to the matter at hand, the lecture at hand, as Dr. Dre would say, we are here to discuss Heather's, which stands at the highest ranking of any movie in the summer of Winona at 93%. So if this is your first time tuning into The Contrarians, we do thank you for doing so. If you're a returning listener, we thank you as well. Give us a moment here while we explain our gimmick to the newbies. Um, what we will be doing here on The Contrarians is raging against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. Uh, in this case, a movie that's highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh. We will make a case for maybe why it shouldn't be that way. On the opposite side of the coin, typically about 30% and below, we'll find a movie, one of those nasty green splotches, typically known as Rotten, and you know, kind of point out some of the positive merit for it. Uh, if you want to know how we really feel about it, hang around for the second portion of the podcast. Now, uh, neither of us had seen this movie before. And save for a couple of texts back and forth between Alex and myself earlier today, uh, I don't think either of us has 
a pretty good idea of how the other one felt. So once we get to real talk in the second half of the show, things might get really interesting. Or it might just be, you know, total agreement. Who knows? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure uh, what to expect from the discourse here. I, I know I definitely have my takes, but we'll see. All right. So, Julio, typically in these situations, we will, or I will, excuse me, turn it over to you to tell us what the critics on Rotten Tomatoes uh, have been and are saying about said film. But much like with the rest of the Summer of Winona, some of our friends in the podcasting community have sent in uh, some contributions to weigh in on Heather's. That is correct. So, once again, we have a mix of Rotten Tomatoes quotes and uh, and clips from our friends. Uh, very excited because we have a, a new contributor this time. But first, we have a clip from a couple of friends that uh, have sent us clips before. Harry and John from Beyond the Box Set. They have one final contribution here in the summer of Winona. So, Harry, what did you think about Heathers? Heathers. Oh, I loved it, I think, from memory. Mm. This was an early episode for yeah, us, wasn't it? Yeah, was, it? it was. Like, one of our first ten. Um, yeah, no, it, it was It was good. It felt like a fairly original film. Um, and I just, mm. I really enjoyed where it was going. I didn't really... It's quite hard to predict where that one was going, I thought, when I watched it. Yeah, it's very, very influential mm. film. Heather's incredibly influential. Mean Girls, you know, or Clueless even, all those films are a huge debt mm-hmm. to Heather's. Fantastic yeah. film, yeah. It was one of the first films that I really knew that I wanted to force you to watch like this whole <laughs> podcast has essentially been like three years of me tricking you into watching films you would never normally mm-hmm. watch and that was a successful yeah. one so great that was john and harry uh, i haven't listened to their heathers episode because uh you know i just watch it i usually don't listen to episodes that deal with movies i haven't seen so i don't get spoiled but uh yeah we didn't really have to force ourselves like either of us to uh to watch this one i think we were both pretty excited to uh to fill in this blind spot uh, to begin with this was way, way easier than Little Women. This was, I didn't have to like hype myself into watching this. Well, as as we've established, it was not set in the 1800s, so that already made it a lot easier for you. And it has uh, a strong, solid love story at its core. So I'm sure that also helped. I guess. But yes, it, it was, <laughs> it was a much easier watch for me than. Quite a couple of the movies on Summer of Winona, but we'll get to that. Who else? Yep. Uh, who else sent in their thoughts? Okay, and then uh, from our Zero Dark Thirty episode and our almost famous episode, Kinsey Jones comes back with thoughts about Heather. She was so excited when I first put out the call saying that we needed clips for the entire lineup of the Summer of Winona. She, I'm pretty sure she was the first person to jump on and and pick Heather's, uh, and I know why because apparently she likes it a lot. Greetings and salutations. Summer of Winona has finally made it to one of my favorite Winona films. I'm truly an admirer of dark comedies and this one really delivers a cheesy but amusing take and a new take on the lame kids versus cool kids in high school. Um, I really do think this movie does so well by not taking itself too seriously, but it does touch on so many deeper topics by making fun of them really. and. The performances are beyond entertaining. We could talk about how fun Winona is the whole movie. She's so edgy, has such funny lines, and her unironic monocle while she's writing aggressively in her diary about how she can't stop framing suicides with her psycho boyfriend. Uh, 
is kind of freaking awesome. Um, it really seems like a movie that she just had so much fun making. Um, but we can't mention Winona without talking about Christian. Uh, talk about someone who probably had a blast while filming. He plays a cool psychopath creep better than anyone I've ever seen. Um, and really, like the movie or not, I don't think I've ever met anyone who didn't enjoy at least one quote from Heather's. Um, a favorite of mine being probably, I love my dead gay son, of course, or um, my teen angst bullshit has a body count now, are we going to prom or hell? <laughs> That's probably the most common one I've ever heard, but it's so good. Um, but I really enjoy this movie, I think Winona is so good for this role. I rate this movie probably on the passenger scale, a passenger without the ER at the end, so definitely, um, it's definitely a high rating for me. I've, I've watched this movie any time of the day. The return of the passenger scale. <laughs> Man, bless her heart. She's one of those people that, like, uh, after, I think maybe after the first time we did the podcast together, or maybe when we first met, I don't know, but I just remember seeing her follow me on Twitter, and I'm like, oh, God. She's so innocent. She's just going to be like subjected to my uber horny, overly aggressive wrestling tweets. Uh, but every time she's been on the podcast, it's been a joy. And um, what was it we did with Jordan where she was just like hanging out and like listening to us record? What movie was that? That has to have been Passengers because we've only done one with Jordan. So it, it has to have been Passengers. Yeah, yeah that's right. Because I remember like at certain points, one of us would say something and she would look up and just like start shaking her head and just in, in total disagreement. <laughs> awesome. Uh, uh, all right. And then just to, to close things down uh, as far as quotes and contributions, I have this quote from Brown Tomatoes from Kathy Mayo from The Sojourner uh, who says, Ryder brings such honesty to her high camp role that you could actually believe a kid like this could exist. And astoundingly, you think you might actually like to meet her. Uh, one of the the Winoni's categories that I've, I've been thinking about would be, because, you know, we had with Travolta, we had the Travolta penises, which seems completely out of place in the summer of Winona. <laughs> but maybe we can, uh, we can see which, we can say which Winona character you would be most likely to date. And I, I don't know, Alex, because we've established throughout the summer of Winona that you like your Winona uh, less innocent and more manipulative. And this Winona writer, the, her character in Heather's Veronica, is just kind of, uh, I don't know, it might straddle that line. that it, it might find the perfect balance between being like smart and kind of shady and manipulative, but also being uh, somewhat of a good person. I don't know. I think her in the dilemma is what I would want, being like a more matured woman that's also just incredibly vindictive and cunning but i don't i don't know if i i was about to say i don't know if i have the facilities for that but at the same time she's with kevin james in that movie so i think i I could do all right she's cheating on kevin james though that's fine i'll be a cuck if it means i get to occasionally shack up with winona Ryder. um long 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 before ron howard and kevin james and vince vaughn uh got to share the screen with Winona Ryder, uh, back in the late 80s, right before the turn of the decade, uh, we went to Sherwood, Ohio, which is, looking on a map here, its uh, its closest notable city is Defiance, Ohio, but it's actually not too far from where I grew up in Waterville, Ohio. looks like it maybe like a 90-minute drive or so. That's right. Um, You're, that's, that's, you have a connection to Ohio. I've forgotten. I do. And it's one of those cities that's uh, pretty close to the border of Indiana. There is a lot of uh, 
more so than any other place I've really been familiar with. The the border of Indiana and Ohio, like to a lot of people, is kind of non-existent. It's all the same type thing. And I guess that likely like goes... like Mexico and Texas. Uh, well, yeah, past San Antonio. <laughs> um, it, it's I, I, That probably goes for a lot of the Midwest. But uh, I do resent them using Sherwood. I mean, it's a good small-town America type thing, but... Just say Defiance, Ohio. It sounds so much more badass. I mean, there's a fucking place called Defiance. <laughs> Two on the nose. I guess that's true. They needed something a bit more reserved than that. So, Winona Ryder in Heathers plays Veronica Sawyer. She is one-fourth of the the popular girls, the quartet that kind of control the the social aspects of the high school that she's in all very pretty, all big hair, but she is the outlier in that the other three in the group um, are Heathers. That's where the name came from, which I was honestly like wondering if they would explain the name Heathers. And fortunately about like five minutes into the movie, I was like, Oh, okay. I get it. So there's um, Heather Duke played by Shannon Doherty. Uh, Heather McNamara, played by uh, Lisa Ann Falk, and Heather Chandler, played by Kim Walker. And as one of our quotes referenced, definitely set the groundwork for the uh, the, the four horsewomen of Mean Girls. The, the Heathers walked so the Mean Girls could run. <laughs> yes, except that I think the Mean Girls did a better job of setting things up. That's I mean, it's impossible, I think, for anybody like us that hasn't seen Heathers, but has seen Mean Girls to start watching Heathers and instantly not get hit with just that feeling of, oh, I've seen this before. Where's Lindsay Lohan? And I think that the key difference is that in Mean Girls, you got to see Lindsay Lohan's, uh, I guess, loss of innocence. She comes into the school and then she slowly becomes one of the Mean Girls. Heathers is like, ah, fuck it. We're just going to go straight to Winona Ryder already being in the group. Uh, and she's already uh, kind of a bad person. So I, I felt that that took away an important part of her journey. We never got to see her when she was good. Yeah, it definitely drops you into the battlefield. And it's like, well, load your gun and keep up. Otherwise, you're going to fall behind. Uh, the movie starts and throughout most of the movie, this is presented in almost a, in a postulary fashion of the story travels between diary entries for Veronica, which I wish they would have been more consistent with that. Cause I forget that it's supposed to be from her perspective until she like runs to her desk and really aggressively pulls out her quill and monocle <laughs> and is like, dear diary uh, echoes, I guess future echoes of uh, her character in little women. She furiously writes an entire novel over the course of a night. And one of the deleted scenes was Kirsten Dunst through her diary <laughs> in the fire. One of the Heathers. Um, but yeah, you already mentioned it. We're seeing here that Veronica is the OG Regina George, but right away in the movie, she explains she wants normalcy back. And, you know, we talked about, we get no backstory at all. We're just kind of brought up to speed through uh, voiceovers where she talks about like having normal friends and uh, the people that the Heathers refer to as nerds and dorks and things of the such. She was uh, friends with at an earlier time and misses it and wants that all back, but she's popular now. So she can't, she has to keep up the status quo. She's in too deep. She's gone too far. I don't. I have it written in my notes. I can't remember exactly. Oh, um, the bad Heather, the 
Mecha Heather. Prime Heather. The final boss Heather is trying to do um, like some polls for the student body and is only talking to like the popular and the rich kids. And Winona asks, why don't we, you know, actually poll everyone? And then I just have the quote written down where she looks at her and says, fuck me gently with a chainsaw. <laughs> and, you know, I, I had said the Heathers walked so uh, the mean girls could run. Well, Daniel Waters slogged so that Diablo Cody could, you know, be Sonic when you get the red boot, when you just can just blitz to your feet or the point where they're just a blur because they're moving so fast. There, there are so many times in this movie, the dialogue was like, to me, a more grounded in reality Juno. And considering how fantastical this movie is for me to say grounded in reality, but there are plenty of lines that I, I've, I could hear Ellen Page saying. Yeah, there, there's a serious Juno vibe here. Uh, but that's the problem, right? That you don't have Ellen Page. You don't even have Dwight from The Office. Rain Wilson is not there to give us five minutes of of uh, finely delivered uh, lines. Instead, it, that's the problem. That you're Some people, not everybody can carry that kind of dialogue. And yeah, we know that can't because she's, you know, there's a reason why she's the start of the summer. But once you get into the, the supporting characters it gets a little more dicey and uh, they kind of write themselves into a corner because they can't have only the really good actors speak this way. They have to have everybody speak this way. But then the problem is that not everybody is a great actor. So when you have, uh, you know, some of the other Heathers try to to have that sort of wit in their dialogue, it just, it, it doesn't work. It actually makes me miss Juno, which is something that should never happen. Parallel to all this, the Heathers and Veronica pranked. Um, they it, we come to find out she's known as Martha Dump Truck, which is just fucking awful. Uh, but she is a heavy set gal in the school that they pranked into thinking that one of the uh, football players was into, and they orchestrate this whole prank in the lunchroom. And while this is all going on, Christian Slater's just in the back of the room wearing his trench coat. And it looks like there's a smoke screen in front of him because every time that it cuts to him, it looks like he's his face is wading through fog just to see and, you know, do his eyebrow acting with uh, Winona Ryder. So there's a lot going on here in the opening. I think it's maybe the first 10 minutes. We learn all about these characters. We see them tormenting uh, Martha. And then Christian Slater just keeps looking at Veronica like, what the fuck are you doing? You're better than this. Yeah, it's the standard. Any high school movie has this sequence. Uh, and I mean, yeah, it's not Heather's fault that we've seen so many since. And we're only now getting around to this one. But just the classic, oh, we're going to give you a tour of the school and the many different groups in the school. Because when they're doing the poll, then you go to the nerds and you go to the stoners and then you go to the jocks. And it's like, yeah, I get it. I've seen it before. And if anything, I found it a little tiresome that basically this movie just paints Everybody is terrible people unless they are super nerdy. Everybody, you know, why Why do we have to demonize pretty girls? But but that's just what this movie does. And like what so many other movies have done is just, oh, if they're hot, they might, then they have to be horrible people. Same thing with the jocks, right? If they like to play sports, they have to be horrible people. Uh, but if they're uh, kind of shy and wear glasses, oh, then they're okay. I was like, come on, give me something a little more complex. I, I was maybe I came into Heather's with very high expectations, <laughs> and then it turned out to be just, you know, basically uh, just another high school movie. So the jocks end up uh, catching wind of this 
just penetrative eye contact that Christian Slater is making with Winona Ryder. And they go over and attempt to bully him and it fails miserably. And he fucking pulls a gun out and we think shoots them both, but come to find out it's okay. We can make light of school shootings cause he had blanks in the gun and he like, he doesn't even end up getting suspended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How uncomfortable did it make you? Like when he pulled out the gun and shot them, I said like out loud, like what? And <laughs> He shoots them, and I don't know. I mean, I guess bleeding into real talk, it's just such a different time period we live in now that it doesn't seem that far out of the realm of possibility. And to be fair, this was 10 years before Columbine, and uh, it, 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 watching it through today's lenses, as we've talked about in a lot of movies we've done, you can say, oh, it was a different time, but you can't really make yourself not watch it through modern lenses so Mm -hmm. it definitely yeah made me a bit uncomfortable yeah it was uh it's it's pretty shocking and it's certainly not the the last time that the movie's gonna play the shock card but i i also talk about watching it with today's eyes i was still kind of recovering from the fact that we never got a shot of when our writer washing her hands after she stuck her finger down Shannon Doherty's throat <laughs> <laughs> to help her throw up. Uh, anyway, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of just really heavy shit. I think Kinsey referenced it in her clip. Uh, this movie deals with a lot of heavy stuff. And I don't know that I agree with the fact that uh, them making fun of it suddenly makes it okay. Uh, I think that, if anything, it's kind of the coward's way of touching on something serious, like, let's say, school shootings or... or teenage bulimia and then just saying oh but no you know it's just funny we're not really gonna delve into what what's really driving these issues so this fortunately leads to a winona Ryder christian slater meetup at the local sack and pack 7-eleven you know whatever the the gas station of the uh, sherwood town is but christian slater's there and he's just is like He's like a fucking 40-year-old teenager. He's just like talking about his <laughs> vagabond lifestyle. And, you know, every town I go to, it's a ham and cheese in the microwave. And uh, <laughs> did you say a cherry or a Coke slushy? And it's so weird because the scene does all it can to make Christian Slater seem like this road-worn man. And they do all they can to make Winona Ryder seem like fucking the most uncomfortable levels of like teenage porn. Like she has the poofy <laughs> hair and the eye makeup, but then she's also sucking on like a licorice and has like the comically <laughs> oversized cup with her straw and big, big lipstick marks on it. It's, I, I mean, this is the definitive good girl uh, lured in by the bad boy trope. <laughs> uh, for this scene, for the, for the Seven Eleven scene, she's not, wearing the shoulder pads though right the shoulder pads kind of define her look in this oh, movie yeah. uh and it's uh real talk organ trans corner i i do dig them i i wish i could pull off the kind of uh style that she goes for and successfully achieves in this movie i for everything that didn't work in the movie for me uh, as far as the, the costume designer props give her an oscar because uh the the amount of different looks that they give Winona while keeping that style consistent, that's that's probably going to be my biggest takeaway from uh, Heathers. Now, where it doesn't work is that 
to me, no matter how hard they try, <laughs> to me, it looks like Winona Ryder is way cooler than Christian Slater. <laughs> like like you said, he's trying so hard. He's putting on the voice and he has a trench coat and he has the stories from, from his past. And all she has to do is just kind of like bite on that piece of Twizzlers and uh, it, and she's already cooler than him. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's just a, a, a casting problem. You know, it's like there's no balance. You need you need a, a, somebody that was, you know, like the version of I know I keep bringing him up, but to me, you know, put Fassbender in the in the Christian Slater role, like a younger Fassbender, and now you feel like you're in the presence of something dangerous, right? Uh, that's, Christian Slater, I was like, oh, that's already been like- made. It's called Fish Tank. <laughs> oh my God, that's true. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but Slater, like one of the things I read on uh, IMDb that I was like, oh, really? Was uh, Christian Slater based his performance off Jack Nicholson. And it was just like, <laughs> <laughs> he is, he's, he's like one iota away from being someone on Saturday Night Live trying to do a Jack Nicholson impression. <laughs> he's just like, here I am with my ham and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I brought a gun. What's his name in the in the movie? JD? Uh right? James Dean or Jason Dean. Yeah. And then they call him JD for short. Yeah, He's not James late. Dean. Here's JD. <laughs> yeah. That's we're not far off from that. And it's his eyebrows are just it's all the most intense things about Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton rolled into a ball of just raw sexuality. And that's what we get with Christian Slater in this movie. Um, But the scene serves to establish that Christian Slater sees something more in Veronica uh, and also that she does not care for her friends and wants out. Ends up going to a college party with Heather Chandler. Uh, I don't know if she's roofied, but she definitely drinks too much and uh, she's basically there, brought there to be, for lack of a better term, a, a fuck or a lay for one of the college guys. And she gets pissed off and leaves and uh, is castigated for this. Heather Chandler confronts her in the the alley, wherever they are. It doesn't look like a fucking dorm of any sort. <laughs> but um, she's just like, you know, you threw up in the hallway. I, I do all this for you. Come Monday, you're going to be history. No one's going to know who you are. And plays into what we're talking about, about, you know, the mean girls, the social um, hierarchy, and the just intense, unforgiving nature of... Teenage girls. <laughs> teenage angst, Yes. So this obviously pisses her off. She goes home and somehow, uh, okay, maybe you can help me out here. Is it explained how Christian Slater figured out where she lives? Uh, No, but he is, it's, we see throughout the movie that he's a psycho. So I, I have no problem believing that he just, he's been following her the entire night (laughs) since the 7-Eleven incident. He's just being on their tail. Broke into the school's registration office and stole all the records. Um, he comes up and he's like, hey, I saw the croquet set up in the backyard. How about a game? And then it cuts to that, you know, smash cut to them post coitus uh, laying down on her lawn. And he says something about it. I never played strip croquet before. And I guess this is as good a time as any to bring up the absolute absence of uh, Veronica's parents. 
because I mean, these two, exist. yeah, these two teens, uh, just having torrid, unabashed monkey sex on their lawn, and they are just completely oblivious to it. They exist, you're right, but it's only in very superficial discussions that we see them, and they're always yeah. like, um, just very unaware of what is actually going on in Veronica's life. Yeah, I, I I feel like this is a I don't know if it's just a, a deleted scene or just them not actually willing to go through with how edgy they 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 want to appear to be. It's like don't bring up strip croquet if you're not gonna show me strip croquet. Uh, I really thought that it would justify the croquet uh, of it all, right? It's why are they even playing that to begin with? You know, that's how the movie opens with the heathers playing with the mallets and the balls and. Uh, <laughs> It's kind of a theme, except that it doesn't really ever pay off. It would have paid off if it had led, if it had justified a, a, a sex scene that we actually saw between uh, Christian Slater and Winona Ryder, where you actually got to see how fucking weird he is. You know, maybe that that was his time, that was his moment to make an impression on me. But instead, you just get to see them cuddling after. They look like a normal couple, so it doesn't. It's just pff, why would you tease me with with croquet sex when? It's not going to happen. Not now, not at all during the movie. It, it just felt like a missed opportunity. And it would have been R. It is rated R, and it would have been just so much more memorable if we just got, like, instead of a smash cut to them nude cuddling, it's like he's got Winona Ryder bent over in the yard, and then he's holding the croquet mallet, and she's biting down on it like Maggie Gyllenhaal in Secretary <laughs> when she bites on that carrot. And... <laughs> And he's just saying something about he's like reciting the rules of the game to her or something. Just completely <laughs> go full in on it. Full on like, well, I was going to say Lars von Trier, but if that was the case, she would be hitting his nuts with the croquet mallet. So <laughs> point being, there are many different ways to take this and they took the least interesting route. Yeah, it's, for uh, a movie that that claims to be so edgy, that's that would have made me stand up and go, all right, bravo. I've never seen that since. <laughs> you know, they could never match it. I've never That's... seen sexy croquet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, they, they do the deed and now they are one. After becoming the beast with two backs, they are now um emotionally one. And they work up the idea she just wants to go torment Heather Chandler. And her idea is she's going to be hungover, so we'll go over there when her parents aren't home, and I'll whip up some nasty concoction that makes her vomit just so I can kind of, you know, balance out the universe with her. And they get there, and Christian Slater, uh, who doesn't change clothes once in this movie, uh, <laughs> he pulls out Drano or some kind of cleaner from under the sink and pours it into a coffee mug and basically says, I want to kill her. And Winona's just like, well, that's not funny. Let's just kind of keep this innocent. And in a classic mix-up, we've all been here before. Winona grabs the the wrong glass and ends up killing her friend. Uh, right away, too. There's no... I mean, I guess it's that dangerous. I've never drank Drano, so I don't know. But it seems like the, the results are instantaneous. Uh, I, I this, this scene is really where the movie lost me because it just stopped making sense. I, I knew where they were going, right? From the moment, it was like Chekhov's Drano. Just you knew that she was going to drink it. And uh, maybe knowing that, because they made it so obvious, made me be more analytical of the the procedure to get there. And it's really clunky because, number one, I don't care how hungover she is. 
how could she not smell? Because, you know, they put her in a cup that's not transparent. So they're yeah. like, oh, she's never going to know what she's drinking because she can't see what's in there. Well, she can still smell it. Drano smells. like it, There's no way that you like drink Drano voluntarily. Uh, Why'd you swallow it, dog? Like, the whole thing is, like, you can put something, like, you can drink something without immediately swallowing it. <laughs> right, right. She would have started, like, it would have burned in her mouth. Yeah. Uh, but then she dies, and Winona Ryder freaks out, and she's like, oh, my God, we killed her. She never even questions what happened. It's like, she starts acting like, oh, of course she died uh, because we gave her Drano, but Winona Ryder should be surprised. Like, her first reaction should be, why did she die when we didn't give her Drano? Like, the only person that knows that there was Drano in that cup is... uh christian slater because he knows that Winona Ryder grabbed the wrong cup right so winona she doesn't act surprised that this was the outcome on the other hand christian slater who knows that there was reino there he acts surprised he, he acts like oh he can't believe that th- that this girl died after they gave her uh disinfectant so it, it just doesn't make any sense no matter which way you look at it I, I can almost i can see why christian slater could maybe be pretending that he's freaking out when really, you know, he's just putting on a show for Winona Ryder. Uh, but to me, that makes it that makes his character less interesting because to me, the character of Christian Slater is more interesting if he wasn't 100% a killer from the beginning and said he kind of eased himself into it as the movie went on. Uh, but even if you went with that, Winona Ryder's reaction doesn't make sense. You know, she should have... She earlier in the previous scene when they were cuddling, she's bragging about how she has a high IQ and how she could have skipped grades and everything. And it's like, she's not reacting like somebody that's smart. Somebody that's smart would have caught on and gone like, wait, what happened? And trace things and figure out, oh, there was a mix-up. I don't know. It, it was just overall a huge disappointment. Yeah, it's definitely all over the place. And then it leads to like this squabbling between them and like the scene played for laughs of them tripping over each other, trying to write the suicide note to leave for Heather. And Obviously, it becomes the talk of the town. I mean, Sherwood, Ohio, there's not a lot going on. I mean, when McDonald's got added there, it was a big deal. So uh, <laughs> we see the town's reaction, and we, we, we see Veronica also in her just state of, for lack of a better term, freaking out over the whole thing. But she gets through it, and then we, we mention Glenn Shaddix. We get Otho, the priest, uh, who this is where I have in my notes. He blames MTV. He blames the MTV generation, and... Uh, says that not enough people have that cool, righteous dude, God or Jesus or whatever he says in their life. Um, this is this is really, I had to pause for a moment and think about it because this is literally right after Beetlejuice. And Glenn Shaddix had like the front seat to the, the meteoric rise of Winona Ryder <laughs> in real time. Because just, I imagine a few months ago, uh, he was there shooting... Beetlejuice, where he was one of the main characters. And Winona Ryder was a supporting character. She she was endearing and she was great. But obviously, I mean, they were on the same... I think they were on the same level, right? They were pals. They were they were sitting at the same table when, uh, when it was lunchtime. And I guess not even a year later, they're on Heathers. And he's playing a minor character. And Winona Ryder is 100% the star of the movie. That has to be weird for for Glenn Shaddix. I mean, hopefully Winona was still gracious and still sat with him at lunch, but uh, 
that's crazy. You know, like the, the the way that I guess Hollywood can change your fortune right away. I hope he was like super bitter and hard to work with. And he was like um, <laughs> on The Office when Charles Minor shows up, he was like Michael and just becomes like extremely petty and shallow and just refuses to do anything that Winona asks him. Or on the other side of it, I hope he became just like an uh pathetic sycophant who just did whatever she asked him to do he's just like cracking ice in a sp- with a spoon in his hand for her <laughs> tab water and uh, jesus but the big difference is he looks exactly the same and winona Ryder, it's like all right she's crossed the line from child into winona Ryder as we know her now because we talked about when we did beetlejuice she's a f- she looks like a kid in that movie yep and of course i understand makeup and wardrobe have a lot to do with that but um, she'd definitely come into her own here. Yeah, if you had, if she looked like her character in Beetlejuice, if you had Lydia palling around with Christian Slater, uh, now that's a much more interesting movie. That that would make me fear for her life. In, in this movie, like I said, I always felt like she was so much smarter and cooler than him. So, uh, it, it was hard by. But if it was Christian Slater preying on on Lydia from Beetlejuice. I, I would be on the edge of my seat. I would have been grossed out too by the... We wouldn't be making jokes about croquet sex, though. <laughs> so two of the jocks in, in the school... I know Ram is one of their names. I forget the other one. But the uh, the point of the matter is the two big ranking players on the football team uh, start spreading rumors that they had a three-way or they were both filleted by Veronica. So obviously, understandably so, this outrages Veronica. So she and she and JD design a plan to uh, lure them in with the promise of a three-way with Veronica, but uh, basically sedate them and make it look like a, a gay sex affair, um, a la Can't Hardly Wait with Mike Dexter. And <laughs> so they do so and they lure them in. But the only thing is Christian Slater... JD uh, proposes to uh, Winona that they shoot him with these guns that have these bullets in it that'll seemingly tranquilize them. Unfortunately, she buys into this and it doesn't take long after Christian Slater shoots the first one in the throat and to see that they're real bullets and really kill these people. Um, yeah. How did she not see this coming? That's I, I, I'm starting to doubt her high IQ credentials. <laughs> yeah, it was... He's like, hey, look at this bullet. But it's really just going to like only pierce their skin a little bit. And then it's going to just make them go to sleep for a while. And then she like misses her target. And he shoots the one dude in the fucking throat. And he just drops dead. <laughs> and she's like, she starts laughing. And he's like, you just let him get away. And and she like puts it together pretty quickly. Uh, but they leave all this... Um, Evidence that would appear to make them gay and a suicide note with each other to make it seem like they killed each other because all they wanted was to be together, but they knew that wouldn't be accepted. Uh, they head to school. Winona Ryder freaks out because she realized they killed two more people. She uh, pulls a cigarette lighter out of her car and burns herself with it just, I guess, because she's feeling so guilty, which leads she wants to like to feel something other than guilt. I, I think this would be the best original screenplay Oscar clip because she pulls it and burns herself and then Christian Slater grabs it and lights the <laughs> cigarette on it. And, you know, they would be showing this while the narrator would be, you know, giving the stage direct or narrating the stage direction. Slater grabs her hand aggressively, pulls it in, lights his cigarette up. 
uh, it's either that or the scene shortly after uh, uh, Heather Prime has died when uh, they're in the locker room, I think. And when our writer is here and everybody talk about superfluous shit. So she walks into one of the showers and just turns it on and gets under the stream. Well, fully clothed. Fully clothed. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just movie making. And also like watching this, uh, I was about to say, do they have those in Peru, but they didn't make cars differently. You remember when cigarette lighters were in cars, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say showers. Do they have showers in Peru? <laughs> Jesus. No. We have rivers. <laughs> you just go out there with a bucket and bring the bucket back home. Uh, Julio started the joke, so any Hans and any Peruvian <laughs> listeners, don't get mad at me. He, he started it. So one of the lines I do have written down here uh, as a quote from the movie, Kinsey already brought to, to the light as we cut to uh, the two jocks' funerals and the dad sitting by the, the coffin, very sad and wishing he could have done more. And he exclaims to the church and the town of Sherwood that he loves his dead gay son. And it's... Uh, the town's reaction to it at this point, you know, there's been three suicides and they, there's no, uh, to be fair, they established that law enforcement there isn't exactly, you know, top of the line, cutting edge, but it's the two cops from Halloween five, <laughs> it's their kids. <laughs> so, but there's been three suicides and there's been no discussion of an investigation. It's just like, well, kids will be kids. And the whole town's just kind of buying it for what it all is. But, this series of killings for JD and Veronica have provided JD with like it's nature's Viagra. I guess he's one of those <laughs> fucking psycho John Wayne Gacy types that gets off on killing and it's too much for Veronica. And it ultimately cultivates in a, a scene at Christian Slater's home where he starts putting on, there's some radio song teen about teenage suicide. Don't do it. Yeah, and he puts it on, and then he shoots his radio, and then that's when Winona's like, all right, that's it, we're breaking up. And then I have in my notes here, Christian Slater is canceled because he grabs her and <laughs> just starts very aggressively making out with her as she fights to get away. Fortunately, she eventually does, but it's clear that she uh, Slater is back in the single category. He, he will have to change his relationship status on Facebook after this encounter. Uh, well, not Facebook, but late 80s with AOL give you a AOL messenger. God, way, <laughs> way before that. He he had to write in to fucking um, Hit Parader was the metal magazine. <laughs> he he wrote in or, or Fangoria or whatever the fuck he read at the time. He was like, hey, just to update my subscription status, I am now single. Uh, this was this probably halfway through the movie, and it took Winona Ryder long enough to realize that she was hooking up with a psycho. It I, took three killings for her to yeah. realize it. <laughs> it's it's insane. Um, during all of these things that are happening, running concordantly with it, uh, Martha Dump Truck, as they call her, the the big girl from the school, uh, tries to kill herself as well. She walks into oncoming traffic while uh, wearing a suicide note taped to her chest and. Um, Fortunately, survives, but it's it shows how desensitized even the the people of Sherwood, Ohio, have become to all this. They're just like, ah, eh, she's it's a trend. She's just trying to catch on with suicide, and uh, this leads to basically Winona's complete pulling the trigger on separating from the popular crew. 
Uh, I have my notes here because she is writing in her diary at one point with her monocle, and Kinsey also called that out, which uh, is never really explained in the movie, and I guess that's the point, but you just it have It doesn't even get a close-up. Winona just... looking like Mr. Peanut several times throughout <laughs> the movie. But back at school, she's what has happened is that JD, in an act of um, retribution, retaliation, what have you, has aligned himself with Shannon Doherty, uh, Heather Two, I guess we'll call her for all intents and purposes, Heather Duke. And he is, uh, via quoting Moby Dick and using some of the ideology from that, has helped convince her that she needs to become the popular, the leader of the pack, the popular girl in school, and provides her with, uh, you know, all the evidence and resources she would need and uh, begins having her pass around a petition. I think they're going to. They're gonna get that band, uh, play the the suicide song at prom. Is that what they're that's right? To? Yeah. How do you feel about Shannon Doherty as as the new Heather, as a new uh, Heather Prime? Because I felt like she couldn't live up to to the the strong impression that original Heather had made. Yeah, I think because they paint a picture of her in the beginning as such a a pushover, it's hard to take her seriously. But I think it also speaks to the desire to be liked. Because she just becomes this huge conniving, see you next Tuesday, like overnight. Yep. Not even overnight, like instantly in the moment. Yeah. As soon as uh, Christian Slater gives her his sponsorship, she just flips on a dime. She becomes this this just comic book villain. Uh, I, I don't know. I had a hard time buying it. I think that... Uh, not that I was crazy about Heather Prime, and I, I guess we never really got to know her very well. But I felt that whenever... She would get into an argument with another writer. It was a pretty decent back and forth. It was, it was, you know, each side was holding its own, and uh, there was a competition there for who would prevail. When it comes to uh, Shannon Doherty versus Winona Ryder, much like I feel when it's Winona Ryder versus Christian Slater, I'm like Winona is way ahead of them. There's no reason why she should be having so much difficulty uh, navigating these waters. Like these guys, Slater and Doherty, are just they're second rate villains. So I, I that's a constant struggle I had during the movie that I just I always felt that Winona was having a, it was not really trying hard enough I guess to to come out on top. She could have just defeated them with ease. It's the ending of Nightmare on Elm Street if she just told Shannon Doherty, "I take back all the power I gave you." <laughs> I don't believe in you. <laughs> I I'm not afraid of you anymore. Then the movie would have been like fucking ten minutes long. So can't do that. <laughs> But she has taken over, and yeah, the aforementioned petition they're passing around is the big angle that JD has lured her into. Because of everything that's happening, Heather McNamara thinks that she has to succumb to everything that's going on, too, and commit suicide. So she tries to down a bottle of pills. Fortunately, uh, Veronica's there to cut her off and save her. This is another quote I have uh, actually written down verbatim just because I was like, man, Diablo Cody just feverishly taking notes in the theater. <laughs> she says, uh, Oh, if you kill yourself, you're just going to become another statistic in the U.S. fucking A today. And it's <laughs> Diablo Cody saw that and it's like, all right, the trick is we have to make people talk nothing like people actually talk in real life. <laughs> they have like this just ridiculous discourse about suicide that makes no sense. Uh, in defense of this, I could buy Winona as a really like one of those teenagers that wears way too much makeup because her parents don't pay enough attention to her and don't compliment her enough. But like, right. The, the three Heathers, I'm like, bitch, you're 36. What are you doing? Like, yes. it's, 
it's it's a uh, it's the Greece syndrome. Uh, it's really weird because I I don't know that it goes as far as Greece, and maybe it's because you have some characters like uh, like Winona Ryder uh, and uh, the nerdy kids that look high school age, uh, but then especially when they went to the the college party, the dude that was trying to hook up with with Winona Ryder, he looks like he was mid. He was sunny. <laughs> Yes. He was this 40-year-old Italian man playing a 16-year-old. <laughs> yeah. It was really weird. I I wrote it down because it was like, I don't know if this makes it any better. You know, it's like on one end you have movies like uh, Hairspray where everybody looks high school age. So that's good. And then you have movies like Grease where everybody looks like, like adults. And I was like, that's bad. But at least it's consistent. And then you have a movie <laughs> like Heather's that's kind of middle of the road. It, it's it makes it harder. You don't know who's a parent or who's a kid. The, the, the age or their appearances are all over the place. Uh, the only one that looks that I couldn't read would be uh, Christian Slater, maybe because of the fog or because of the eternal trench coat. But I couldn't tell you if he was uh, in his thirties or if he was a twelve-year-old. It depends, I guess, on the context. Is he holding a gun? Then uh, then he's a little older. I just imagine he's wearing that trench coat like in the dead of summer. I mean, even the dead of summer in Ohio is only like 90 degrees, but still I could just like, I wish they had based on everyone's wardrobe. It looks like this was made in the fall, but I just wish like we got like the extended cut where it's him and showing up to school in the summer, wearing that trench coat, just sweating profusely <laughs> and just talking. the pit stains. Just I will not conform to your societal needs. <laughs> So all of this leads to a dream sequence in which uh, Veronica sees what it would be like if Heather Duke uh, was killed or uh, they feigned uh, another or they framed her, excuse me, again for committing suicide. It starts kind of in the realm of believability, but then it quickly turns into, as you do in television and film, just start setting things off. Like, I believe her funeral, everyone's wearing 3D glasses. So it just becomes absolutely uh, fantastical. Glenn Shaddix comes back for for just an extra five minutes. He, he got paid an extra $7,000 for that one scene. <laughs> it was his last hurrah before he disappeared from, uh, from the, <laughs> the filmic horizon. Uh, I, I, I very strongly get the feeling whenever we, we are hit with one of these fantasy sequences uh, in, in a movie, that's just kind of the, the screenwriters, the filmmakers in general, just throwing up their hands in the air. They ran out of steam. It's just filler. It has zero bearing on the story itself. It's just a waste of, I don't know, how long does this go on for? Five, ten minutes? Uh, It doesn't really do anything. We already knew that Winona was not uh, on Christian Slater's side, right? If, if, If she was still dating Christian Slater, then she has this dream. And after the dream, she breaks up with him. I'll be like, all right, I get it. You know, clunky on the nose, but at least it has a reason to be there. But no, this comes after... She has already told him that she's not interested again. It just seems unnecessary. It's just like padding. And this movie is not 90 minutes, so it didn't need the padding. It, it you could have actually cut some stuff out. Yeah, it's it's like one of those things. I guess the director made a bet that he could hit a movie that was an hour and 47 minutes long. And <laughs> he finished it. It was like an hour and 38. And he was like, fuck. Call Glenn Shaddix. <laughs> Get him back on the phone. How much will he do it for? 7000 we're going to go in the black for this. but uh. <laughs> So that passes. And it, I mean, I think it smash cuts to Shannon Doherty or it, it, at least the next day we see that she's still very much alive and still a, a prolific and domineering character in the movie. Um, 
that is the next day because that smash cuts to back to Veronica in bed waking up because this is a dream she had. And uh, her parents are summoning her for dinner because she wakes up because in her dream she hears dinner time or right. you know something to the effect of. And so she runs over to her diary and starts it with final diary entry. And she's says, I'm going to make sure that JD can't get another kill because I'm going to kill myself or something to the effect. So he shows up with the ladder in the window, comes upstairs. He, uh, We see a, an establishing shot of him outside, making sure that his gun's loaded. He comes up and he finds uh, Veronica, Winona Ryder, hanging from, I think, her ceiling fan. And it looks like she had already uh, beat him to the punch uh, for very insensitive way of phrasing in terms of uh, committing suicide. And he explains, I, I came up to kill you myself, but you went ahead and did it. Uh, I was going to show you this uh, petition and it was all a ruse. Uh, it was a lie, a scam, a fraud. He had hoodwinked uh, Heather Duke and what he was having, all the students signed was a petition saying it was okay for him to blow up the school on the the date that followed the evening they were together. So he's like, Hey, I'm going to blow up the school tomorrow. It's going to be great. We're going to reset everything. And you know, all the people that get with problems are going to be dead. So, so he, he leaves, he, he turns to a James Bond villain and just explains his master plan to uh, what he believes is the corpse of Winona Ryder. I was really disappointed. He didn't like turn the pages of the petition using the, the barrel of the gun or like, you know, <laughs> kind of scratch his head thinking, because th- th- at this point, he's just become um, Skeet Ulrich at the end of Scream. Yes. Like he's just he's become a caricature of someone who's supposed to be insane. But he just leaves. He's fine with it. And then Winona's mom comes up and finds her hanging. It's like it's dinner time. And then she sees her and really, really weird scene. She just immediately is like, I'm sorry I didn't let you get that job at the mall. I just thought you'd come home late. <laughs> And then Winona kind of undertakers up and lifts her head and then unwraps herself and gets down from where she was hanging. I mean, if you're <laughs> sensitive to that kind of that kind of imagery, that scene is rough. <laughs> I I don't know that I agree, but then again, I am not sensitive to that kind of uh, uh, imagery. I, what I was thinking the entire time is I could not believe that Christian Slater couldn't tell that she hadn't really hung herself because maybe I am desensitized and I've seen uh, hanging bodies from so many movies before. It, to me, it looked very obvious that she was hanging from from her torso, not from her neck. So I don't know. I just I never bought it. And uh, and I guess because I believe that the Christian Slater character is nowhere near as smart as he really thinks he is. I guess it makes sense that he wouldn't notice. But the mom, I mean, after the initial shock, she should have been able to kind of notice that something is not quite right. This is not a proper suicide. It's just a mock suicide <laughs> and a very hastily put together one at that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that's probably me. I, I'm just jaded when it comes to this, this sort of imagery. And you probably are too, Alex, because you watch more horror movies than I do. Oh, no, that's what I was saying. I didn't say it bothered me. But, like, with the way the scenes played, if you are sensitive to that kind of stuff, like... This is definitely one of those movies that I, I could not in good conscience recommend to anyone who's like experienced a suicide in in their life because it does kind of in a way make light of those situations, which it's it's a it's a a balancing act for lack of a better expression. It's a uh, what they call like the trigger warnings, like the the latest editions of uh of this movie have 
all the trigger warnings at the beginning. Just like yeah. the whole screen of uh, trigger warning, suicide, trigger warning, school shooting, trigger warning, bulimia. <laughs> just <laughs> it hits all those really uh, spicy topics. And Eyebrow acting. Yes. <laughs> trigger warning. Christian Slater trying to be Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Christian Slater is Jack Nicholson if he fucked Michael Keaton and they had a kid. Uh <laughs> So we cut to the next day and Christian Slater has devised a plan following his father works in destruction and demolition and has uh, blown up many a building. So he's going to follow one of the plans that he laid out laying, you know, different uh, explosives and detonation devices throughout the building. The, of course, the uh, coup de gras being the, the biggest supply, the big, the big one, uh, the big one, as Sid in Toy Story would say, is in the boiler room of the school, which is underneath the gymnasium. And it just so happens that on this day, they will be having a pep rally. So uh, Winona shows up to school and the guidance counselor's like, I heard you killed yourself. And uh, Winona does tell her to get a job, which I laughed really hard at that. But she goes to find uh, JD and she does learn about the layout of the building. She learns that the boiler rooms below the gymnasium. And then she shows up and she finds Christian Slater laying these bombs. And then this movie becomes like this really shitty action movie. Yep. Like this becomes like commando. Cause she's like, can I see your hall pass? And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like the part where she uh, shoots him and he falls in the, into the boiler and it lets out some steam. I, I could hear Arnold saying, you need to blow off some steam. <laughs> like that's how silly and formulaic this movie becomes. She has him dead to rights at least twice in this sequence. And she drops the ball twice. He, he gets the better because at first, yeah, she sneaks up on him. She has a gun. She has a gun on Christian Slater. And yet somehow he manages to take the gun away from her, knee her, slap, like, push her face against the wall. I don't know. It's, it was, you know, you want to talk about trigger warnings, like trigger warning. When Winona Ryder gets fucked up in the climax of this movie because she gets hurt <laughs> a lot. And then she recovers. He's still setting up the bombs and she grabs uh, a fire extinguisher and somehow she manages to not overpower him completely with a fire extinguisher. She hits him like on the shoulder, I think, when she should have just knocked his ass out in one hit. And, uh, and they still have like another struggle. Uh, it was just, yeah, I felt the same way. I was like, I know it's the 80s, but you did not have to. You were doing an 80s high school comedy. You were not doing an 80s cheesy action movie. and But that's what it turned into. Yeah, I don't know if this was like they had to do this scene to be able to sell it off to like video stores and shit. But yeah, it was, it just becomes like a really shitty action movie at this point of, of the time. And yeah, and then she becomes stupid for being pretty smart throughout the movie, or at least pretty sharp. She just becomes really like, Oh, woe's me. I can't. I'm just a, a, a non-powerful woman, and this man's going to overpower me, both physically and emotionally. But she finally, after all this racket, and there's this like ridiculous part where he knocks down a bunch of empty barrels that are stacked up. It's like the scene in Wayne's World where it's like uh, the guys are explained that they just stack crates of chickens and watermelons it's like what do you guys do with these oh we just stack them and then wayne's like you have to wonder if this will pay off later in the movie that's exactly like we were just missing a shot of the janitor played by fucking i don't know Wes craven just stacking all these barrels and waiting for the the punchline which in this case is it's not even funny no one falls into them just fucking 
<laughs> Christian Slater runs by him so fast that the whiplash of the tail of his coat knocks him all over. <laughs> and so anyway, she goes and points a gun at him is like, tell me how to turn it off. And he sticks his middle finger up and then it just becomes like, this is like an evil dead movie at this point. She, she shoots off the finger that he's flipping her off with and yep. it starts, you know, jettisoning blood uh, and so he wraps it up and he tells her how to turn it off. It's like, if that's what you really want. And then I guess what he tried to do was to cut the wires on the bomb so that it couldn't be stopped. But in the progress of doing so, he just ruined the bomb. <laughs> like it, it makes no sense. He takes a knife out and I thought he was trying to stab it so that the, it would short circuit the electric part, uh, electrical part of it. But in the act of doing that, he just basically neutered it. Like it's, it's useless now. It, it doesn't make sense. It's this, this whole sequence just screams reshoots. I, I don't know that the whole thing, that bit with the knife doesn't pay off. doesn't make any sense. The, the, nothing makes sense. When a writer earlier in the movie, they established that she can't shoot for shit. She, <laughs> she couldn't shoot the, the football player earlier. And now here she's 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 a marksman, a markswoman. <laughs> she manages to shoot his middle finger off one try. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. I I don't care. <laughs> it's just you know Stallone, Schwarzenegger, uh, Sigourney Weaver. They can pull the shit off, but uh, we're not writer and Christian Slater. Nope. Yeah, it it did nothing for me. So she shoots him a couple more times, and then she gets out and leaves the school. Christian Slater like hobbles out with her and he's obviously worse for wear and he does have one remaining bomb and it's he straps it's strapped to himself and then he starts the timer on it and she pulls out a cigarette basically to just kind of you know I'm gonna dance on your grave type thing so when he blows up it and the fallout of it the, the the plume that's created by Christian Slater blowing up lights her cigarette for her yeah not enough uh, viscera though. It's like they, no. they got the, the the explosion right, but not the amount of guts that would have come out of it. No, yeah, we needed like uh, the Lost Boys when they push that vampire into the bathtub that's full of garlic and holy water. Like how just this sludge starts spewing from every drain in the household. Could have used something like that. Just like such an undignified way for the JD character to go is just <laughs> his body just not even vaporizing, but just splattering everywhere. Um, but she lights her cigarette. She goes in the school. She's an absolute mess. She steals the um, red beret. Or no, it's not a beret. It's like, like a, a bonnet. Yeah. A ribbon. Okay. It's uh, just an overglorified hair tie. She takes it away from Heather Duke and says there's a new sheriff in town, which I guess that red hair tie establishes. That's, that's, a, that's like the political hierarchy. <laughs> uh, you know, the president of the United States has Air Force One. The most popular girl at Sherwood High has the the red hair tie. So um, she takes that, and then she goes and finds uh, Martha, the overly bullied woman of the school, and explains, hey, my prom date just flaked out. Would you like to get together and hang out on prom night and rent some movies? And she says, yes, I'd like that. That That's all it takes to redeem Winona Ryder, who has murdered... <laughs> At least one person knowing, you know, she shot that guy. There was, there's no other way around it. The Heather Prime, I mean, you could say that she was just an accessory to murder because technically it was Christian Slater who poured the the poison and who gave her the cup. But uh, with the two jocks, it was one each. Slater shot one, and when our writer shot the other one, 
so I I don't know that Winona that, shot first. Yes, <laughs> in the Heather's anniversary uh, special edition, they've kind of digitally she's she's holding a flashlight <laughs> instead of a gun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I I don't know that that's enough for for Winona to just. For it to be okay, morally okay, for her to walk away free. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that that uh, these people didn't deserve it, and that is obviously a much more complex conversation that this movie is interested in having, right? Whether these three teenagers were so shitty that really the world is better off without them, I don't know. But, but I think that what they are saying is that well, it's okay. It's a happy ending because we know now. Uh, we know that stopped Christian Slater from blowing up the school. Didn't stop him from blowing up himself. And then she went and became friends with uh with the girl that everybody was picking on. I guess you know that's not terrible to me. What I took away from the ending, the biggest thing was that uh, before Christian Slater died, he asked her, "What do you want?" And she said, "I want cool guys like you out of my life," which is hilarious if you've gone through the Winona Ryder filmography the way we have, because the one constant. Uh, in every movie we've seen, it's just her terrible uh, decisions when it comes to relationships and the really uh, shitty guys that she dates. And so it started all the way back with Heather's. <laughs> she proudly proclaimed that she was going to stay away from people like Christian Slater. And she went on to hook up with uh, Channing Tatum, with uh, Ethan Hawke, fucking James Franco in Homefront. I mean, it's just it's everywhere. <laughs> No, she she learned nothing. She betrayed Veronica all these years later. <laughs> That's right. Like I, I guess the her befriending Martha is her marrying Kevin James in the dilemma. Like she just has like this front about her life that like yeah I'm involved with the common man too. It's all right. Never mind this drug addict. That's like this smoking hot dude with a chiseled body that I'm shacking up with on the side. <laughs> All right. Um, are you ready for real talk? Yes, let's move it along to real talk. Great bike. Yeah. Just a humble perk for my dad's construction company. Seen the commercial, right? Bringing every state to a higher state. Wait a minute. Jason Dean, your pop's Big Bud Dean Construction? It must be rough moving place to place. Well, everybody's life has got static. Is your life perfect? Oh, yeah, I'm on my way to a party at Remington University. Mm. No, my life's not perfect. I don't really like my friends. Yeah, I, uh, I don't really like your friends either. Well, it's just like there are people I work with and our job is being popular and shit. <laughs> Maybe it's time to take a vacation. All right, I am recording real talk for Heather's. All right, man, I, I am interested in the this portion of the podcast as well. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking we'd probably be aligned, and then the movie completely fell apart in the last fucking twenty minutes. So we may not be on the same page. Uh, uh, we'll see. We'll see. I I have the benefit, I guess, of having seen it twice. But uh, I don't know. I don't know that it changed much how I felt from the very beginning. So I, I guess we'll we'll see. How exciting! Unprecedented grounds in these unprecedented times here on the Contrarians. <laughs> Heather's was released 
uh, premiered at Sundance on January 21st of 1989. It was released in the United States on March 31st of 1989 with a estimated budget of roughly $3 million, And this baby did not do well at the box office, like several movies we've done before that did very meager numbers at the box office. This, uh, just barely over a million, did go on to find massive uh, success on uh, home media and also its uh, legacy as a cult classic of sorts. Julio, is Roger Ebert one of the quotes that you pulled? Uh, no, no, it isn't. So okay. if you have a Roger Ebert quote there, go for it. So it's a morbid comedy about peer pressure in high school, about teenage suicide, and about the deadliness of cliques that not only exclude but also maim and kill. Uh, but he only gave it 2.5 out of 4 stars. Um, yeah. Too hip for Ebert. Yeah, I guess so. I was going to say that... that I, I didn't do too much research into that. That's just found on the Wikipedia page for the movie. But um, definitely a movie I'd heard a lot about and definitely one of the ones I was more uh, looking forward to going into the summer of Winona. That's why I kind of made sure we shoehorned it in. Uh, as we mentioned in the first portion of the podcast, directed by Michael Lehman of Hudson Hawk fame, uh, who would go on to Hudson Hawk fame and written by Daniel Waters, uh, who also wrote Hudson Hawk, uh, Batman Returns, as I mentioned, Demolition Man, Catwoman, and oh my um, god, and most importantly, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. <laughs> Do you have any idea what that is? Yeah, that's the uh, what's his name vehicle uh, that comedian um, Andrew Dice Clay. Yes. Do you remember who directed it? Andrew Dice Clay, <laughs> Rennie Harlan, uh, no. Heather's. Winona Ryder at possibly her least Winona-y. Huh. I mean, maybe? I don't know. I. It's definitely a Winona that we haven't seen before. I guess, that, like, this type of character. But at the same time, and maybe because we were watching it at the end of having watched, what, 12 other Winona Ryder movies, I was fascinated picking up echoes from her other personas of the summer of Winona in uh, just like facial expressions or ways that she said some things. It was, uh, it was pretty crazy. I, uh, not to get too much into it yet, but I, it reminded me, I don't know at what point in the summer of Travolta, I had that moment of, uh, sort of awe inspiring moment where I was thinking, wow, this guy played this character and he played this character and he played this character. And yeah. I can buy that it's him. You know, I can see the common thread among all those performances while at the same time being fully aware that they're very different characters that he's playing successfully. And uh, I I had that moment while I was watching Heather's because she would have a facial reaction to something and I'll be like, hey, that's Lelena from Reality Bites, you know? Or, you know, she would say something that was kind of quippy and I'm like, oh, that sounded like, you know, if uh, if Joe from Little Women was in the 80s you know that's like it, it, it would give me that vibe and it was i don't know i just found it fascinating because it's so early in her career and having watched things that she would do decades later i don't know i could feel like i was i was seeing i was connecting all the dots in my head in a way so it felt like something new but it also felt very familiar in a good way i mean she was still a teenager here so it's like really impressive and speaks to her prowess as an actress things she would go on to refine i mean She's definitely a ball of potential in this. I think she's good in this too, but she definitely is like um, 
the proverbial lump of clay in this. You watch this, mm-hmm. and obviously we're keen to it and way more in tune with it right now because we've spent the fucking past three or four months just only watching Winona Ryder movies. But you can see here more so than even Beetlejuice, and we talked about this a little bit with Beetlejuice, but you can see the uh, all the like shining lights of her potential throughout it, and it makes it a, a really fascinating watch. Right. Um, it, it's that moment where, you know, I imagine if you were just not just an executive, anybody, I guess, watching uh, the movie in 1989 when it came out and you see her and you might have not seen Beetlejuice. But even if you had, you know, this is the one that confirms, oh, wow, this this actress has the potential to go on and do big things. I've I've had that moment myself with other uh, actors and actresses. In this case, I can imagine being uh, somebody in 1989 and watching Heathers and going, wow, what is she going to do next? The Summer of Winona, that's what she did next. Rages on. So before we get too deep into it, to hit our regulars, our nuptials, uh, we have another uh, podcast community contributor, and also I believe you pulled a few quotes, Julio. That is correct. So we have one negative clip for Heathers coming from Ryan, who's gone all over the place here. He was negative on Reality Bites. He was positive on Little Women. And now negative again for Heathers. Ryan from Spit and Polish. Dear Diary, the contrarians told me, Ryan Swinsky from the Spit and Polish podcast, to give a negative review of the film Heathers. So here I am with a monocle over my left eye and some bizarre music playing in the background that is distracting because I am oh so quirky, yet relatable, like Winona Ryder. Heathers lives and dies by how one feels about its odd tone, which is actually something I respect about it, but what I don't respect is, oh, the terrible direction, terrible editing, the out-of-place music, the bizarre writing choices, and Winona Ryder. A film filled with interesting characters and actors, and yet we are stuck with a character that is the golden standard of not only being boring, but self-important. Yeah, Winona Ryder. But the film needs to have a quirky, angsty teen that says fuck you to the authority, but also not too much because she has to be palatable enough for the parents to let their kids see the movie, and who else is better at that than Winona Ryder? Just check out the film Jawbreak or the musical version of Heather's for a more fleshed out version of this story. Have you seen Jawbreaker? Because I haven't. I was just about to say Jawbreaker is a fantastic call out. Um, Really? Oh yeah, Jawbreaker is great. I agree with most of what he said, but not entirely. <laughs> um, I do completely agree that the score is absolutely ridiculous. Like the um, the scene where they're killing the jocks, and there's the they shoot the first one, and then it turns into like the chase scene with mm-hmm. Christian Slater. It sounds like the first Terminator or there's a couple, uh, you know, really generic Nightmare on Elm Street score pieces like that. The <laughs> and it's like it makes no sense. Like the tone they're trying to set does not at all fall in line with that. It makes it sound like like the mood it sets is that Christian Slater's like this 
crazy monster that this guy is trying to get away from. And the character that's, you know, the, the victim in this situation, the guy who's running away, we have not been given any reason to have any sympathy for him at all in the movie. So right. it definitely does not work at that point. But there are things he said that I disagree with. I, I keep getting way ahead of us here. So uh, <laughs> that was the only negative clip we had, correct? That is correct. Uh, we have a, I have a couple of uh, Rotten Tomatoes quotes. Some of them are uh, actually positive or like, you know, they're from fresh reviews, but they, it was just, they picked a quote that was negative. <laughs> so uh, let's do the Rotten first. Uh, I have uh, Dennis Schwartz from Dennis Schwartz Movie Reviews who says, a pointless satire on high school co-eds acting bitchy and hanging out in cliques. Um, I mean, that could describe a whole bunch of movies, <laughs> not just Heather's. Federico Furzan from Cinelipsis says, This supposedly relevant fable and teenage angst feels like a loud shout and nothing else. Uh, full review in Spanish. Maybe I can see how somebody could feel this way. A loud shout is, you know, like a lot of noise, but there's not a whole lot behind it. Maybe. Uh, and then this is fresh. CJ Shu from Review Film Review says, If we could have just given one fuck less, it would have been a masterpiece. Now, do you know, like, did you, when you hear that, do you go like, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about? Because I do. Uh, no. What was the, what was the reference there? Uh, well, that's just something that I, that's how I felt that, uh, or at least how I'm choosing to take it is that if the movie had kind of like pulled back just a little bit on the, uh, for lack of a better term, PSA-ish of it all. You know, because it's dealing with suicide and just uh, and the cliques and all that stuff. And there were moments where it felt like it was there are moments where it feels very transgressive. And then there are moments where it feels like it's actually trying to do some good or trying to uh, set a good example. Like the scene where Winona stops the suicide from one of the Heathers. And so I can I can kind of see that if I think what this guy is saying is if it was more ruthless uh if maybe Winona was not the character of Veronica was not kind of restrained by the fact that she needs to be somewhat of a hero and somewhat likable by the end of the movie, uh, mm -hmm. this movie could have been just a masterpiece. And I can kind of see that. Uh, I don't know. It bothers me as much as this person, but then again, they, they gave him a, a fresh review. So we'll see. Finally, Mariah Lowell from common sense media says after Columbine, this dark comedy isn't as funny. Uh, and I put it there because a little bit of what we talked in contrarian's corner, uh, you know, with the the trigger warnings and whatever, I I can see some people just not going for this at all because it's yeah. just yeah. you know uh, it's like I said it's transgressive comedy at times and it's just taking these issues uh, that I don't know they become exacerbated. It's just that now we, for better or for worse, we seem to feel everything more intensely and yeah. So I could just see somebody checking out very early on and uh i don't think that that's necessarily a negative on the movie that's just one of no. those things where you kind of have to be aware that you know it's not for everyone and uh it's one of those complicated discussions where personally it bothers me when the audience puts all the responsibility on the artist regarding trigger warnings you know or, or the things that we're sensible to yeah that that frustrates me too um you don't find that in higher tier, though. I think that's 
that's the problem. This movie is ripe for cancel culture and people to zone in on and like because it is always this middle ground stuff. What I my, what I was going to lend to like higher art you don't really see come under fire yeah. because not enough people I don't want to say care but not enough people so for example um Salo I think is the name of the movie 120 Days of Sodom. Are mm-hmm. you familiar with that? I I'm, I haven't uh, seen it but I'm familiar with it. So I've watched it. You know, it's got a Criterion release and people think it has like this massive uh, not massive, but it has like this profound place in film history and was like this really powerful film. I watched it. It's fucking disgusting. Like it's like <laughs> it, whatever, you know, statement that was trying to be made by it, it I, I don't get. And, you know, Lars von Trier's films and things of that nature. I mean, that guy's a fucking Nazi sympathizer. He's a Hitler <laughs> sympathizer. And like you never hear him in the spectrum of cancel culture, it just always, it's a weird divide, you know, the things that are targeted and, uh, well, yeah, I think that definitely, I think you're onto something because, uh, I would say what's more pop culture relevant, more accessible is more likely to get canceled because there's more people paying attention. Yeah. And it's, you know, I fear if Winona Ryder was of higher notoriety right now, something like this would be looked at and be like, Oh, look at how this scoffs at suicide and makes light of, people that would do that. So I, I, I say all that to say we make a really roundabout point about this of, man, watching this through certain lenses, you could definitely, uh, it's not a movie for the sensitive. It's not a, 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 not a movie for the sensitive and it's not a movie. Bachelorette is a movie that I've plugged on this podcast before. I'd, I'd, I'd love that movie. But um, certain People could view it as making light of eating disorders, which mm-hmm. is similar to this movie, which uh, I don't think this movie is making light of eating disorders, but it's always weird. Like it would be hard to recommend this movie to someone. And especially, like I said, with like suicide, that's like I, I myself and uh, you, I think, are both fortunate in that we come from situations where that's never directly impacted us. Yeah. So it's, uh, that's such a hard thing to tackle. And I could see certain people thinking this movie makes light of that. So it's, you know what I'm trying to say? Like this is such a hard sell from any perspective, but there's no wrong side, I think. Right. That's, that's the main thing, but the problem comes when you, when you try to make one of the sides wrong, it's the movie's fine. And if the movie's not for you for whatever reason, because it, it just, makes you uncomfortable because of your life experiences, that is fine too. It's okay to not want to watch a movie because it makes you uncomfortable. I'm sure if I think hard enough, I'll come up with movies that I'd rather just not watch because I just, you know, it has nothing to do with the quality of the movie, just the subject matter that it touches on. It's just not for me. But I I also think, I always think back of uh, Neil Gaiman's introduction to his book of short stories called Trigger Warning. And in it, I was... It took me by surprise. I think I'll link to it. I'm sure there's like a copy online. But the point he makes is that he was like, yes, trigger warning and like fucking proud of having it on this book, you know, because the the whole point of art is to make you feel. And I can see how the danger of the, the, you know, the popularization of trigger warnings, because, you know, you didn't have that, what, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was not such a thing as trigger warnings. And now it's like, you know, you'll see them on uh, social media posts, on on articles, and whatever. And I understand why they're there. You know, it, it's 
it is a thing. We've been talking about it for 10, 15 minutes now. Like you can, your life experiences can shape you in a way that you react intensely and negatively intensely to something, to, to a piece of art, to something you read, to something you see. But there's also the danger of suddenly falling into the trap of using trigger warnings to shield yourself from yes. any experience yes. that that would keep you, that would actually make you grow as a person. Not to cut you off, but that that's exactly what I was about to say. Even like, you know, even if you're in situations where stuff like that has directly affected you, to me, what helping systemically fix issues, like portraying certain races as inferior and women as inferior, that's different than, you know, that's something working towards, but like certain topics that a movie tackles or certain topics that an article or a book or music tackles, uh, be it suicide or, you know, drug addiction, um, you know, domestic violence, whatever it is. I feel like putting warnings on that is like baby proofing art, which is a really weird. It's a very, it's a very hard thing to decipher and put into, especially right now, because like you and I, our friends and we know how each other thinks so we can say these things to each other uh, and put it on the internet because we're confident in the people who listen to this podcast's ability to interpret that. But it's in such a weird place that like you can't just say that to anybody because you don't know what the reaction is going to be. I, I think that it's just, uh, you know, it's a balancing act. It's, it's just tough. I think that it's, it needs both sides to be uh, uh, just willing to engage if the purpose of art is to just stimulate conversation or one of the purposes of art, right? If you're going to watch Heathers and there's a trigger warning that says, hey, trigger warning. I don't even know how you phrase them, but, you know, has a comedy based uh, on suicides, you know, and you go, whoop, nope, not for me. That's right. Like, I, I wouldn't judge you for that because I don't know what in your life has led you to have that, you know? But at the same yeah. time, I would hope that most people are aware that having that reaction definitely closes off that opportunity of experiencing yes. the movie. And it might be yep. something that actually enriches your life and makes you think about new things. Or, you know, it may end up, you may end up having a good time anyway. I, of course, I don't have that problem with the movie. I... I'm lucky enough, like you said, to be able to just laugh at it. I, I I found everything funny and clever and, you know, in the back of my head, like I'm sure it was happening to you. I was like, oh, but that could just, you know, really bother someone or that could bother someone. But to me, I, I was just laughing. Uh, it's I, I think it's something that we're still figuring it out. And the only other thing that I was thinking that kind of complicates it or it's just another factor to, to consider when talking about it, it's just that in general and... I'm sorry if it sounds harsh, but I just think that in general, the internet for all the great things that it does and all the beautiful things that it's done for humanity and, you know, the human connection, whatever, it's also kind of like dumbed us down as a society. Oh, God, yeah. You know, it's made it easier to spread the dumbness. And so, so I feel like I can kind of understand why there's this impulse to to baby-proof art and to just create these these guidelines, and so somehow you you arrive to to trigger warnings because you're mixing together the people that have justified reactions to to art with the people that are just having uh, you know let's just say uh, let's justify reactions or you know if you're just having well I just don't like it you know. But you're calling yeah, I mean, for for it to be censored in a way. 
Twitter is definitive proof of why not everyone deserves to have their voice heard. Like it's, it's uh, as cynical as that may sound. Uh, yeah, in a democracy, of the contrarians where Alex and Julio outed themselves as fascists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, democracy is one thing. I mean, the whole point of art is to encourage uh, thought and debate, and so the whole idea of trigger warnings and like with this movie with Heather's, it's watching it through i was thinking about it through a 2020 lens of like hey if someone asked me what this is about I'd be like oh it's this comedy about suicide and it's like well no you can't say that now and <laughs> it's it's a very uh fascinating conundrum i think um because i think a lot of people just view that at the surface level like oh it's this movie that makes light of suicide and it's like no that's not really how it is it's, it talks about like how fucking awful it is to be a teenager in some aspects. And I know this movie, like that's the whole funny part about it. It's just fucking Sherwood, Ohio, all white people, (laughs) you know, everything's nice. They all have nice cars. They all have huge homes, uh, rich parents and shit like that. But that's, I think the, the subject that it tackles is interesting and, um, kind of segueing away from the cancel culture discussion. One of the things I was fascinated about watching this movie Julio, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this is exclusive to America uh, in terms of like the high school that's run by the popular clique. I know that the awkwardness of being a teenager is universal. <laughs> I kn- I know that for the majority of humans, the period between eleven years old and fifteen years old is like the worst time you will go through in your life, just because it's so. So, so much mentally and physically going on. But of course, our main characters here a little bit after that. What I was going to ask was, did you relate to any of this? Were Did you ever find yourself bullied or ostracized or an outcast in high school? Um, well, the key difference is that I, you know, I grew up in Peru. So when you turn 11, actually, that's when they send you off into the jungle just with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> No, I kid. I was a very privileged Peruvian. I lived on the coast. I went to private school. It's funny because I was actually thinking about this last night, not because of uh, Heather's, but because I, once again, I'm going to mention my my journey through the Winona B-Sides. I watched this movie that's, I think, her first ever movie appearance. Uh, It's called Lucas. has Corey Haim in it. Charlie Sheen. Oh. It's uh, it's also a high school movie, and the main kid played by Corey Haim. You know, he, he's like what year was that? Eighty six, maybe. It's okay. baby Corey Haim. He's just like a tiny thing there, and he's he's nerdy, and he gets picked on, and uh, funnily enough, but the Renata Ryder has a small part, but she's basically the one girl that's that has a crush on him, but. Anyway, it's it's a movie about bullying. Most of it is, you know, because this is a kid that's smart and he's really sweet, but he's, you know, he's nerdy and he's tiny. And so the jocks bully him and the girl that he likes, you know, she just actually she's friendly towards him. But, you know, she falls for the jock. It's just as I was watching it, I was like, man, that's right. Like, it sucks not being popular. But I was also thinking, how lucky was I that I was never quite in that space? You know, like growing up. I was like, I was a good student and I was not like physically impressive. I was not like a sports player. I was not a jock. So my life could have very easily fallen into that 
I, I could have become like one of those kids that get bullied, but somehow I didn't. I think that part of it was that I just, I was lucky enough to have the right friends. And part of it might've been that I had very supportive parents and a, and a younger brother that, you know, I don't know, made me feel confident enough to, I don't know, not, not get into like the kind of trouble that you seem to get sometimes when, when you're getting bullied or you're about to get bullied. I don't know. But watching the movie, even though it didn't reflect my experience directly, I was getting anxious and I was feeling, you know, just very uncomfortable and, you know, really hoping that this kid somehow made it through and all that stuff. And uh, so I can relate to the experience, even if I haven't lived it directly. Uh, watching uh, Heather's, it's more of a comedy. So it's, it's a little, there's more detachment there. And I, it felt less universal than Lucas, but I could still get it, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I watched Heathers and it didn't like make me uncomfortable in that sense compared to, you know, how I felt watching Lucas last night. But I totally get it. It doesn't it didn't feel like it was I was watching this sort of like sci-fi depiction, right? Of of a world that I I couldn't really <laughs> fathom existing in the real world. It's like no, I get it, you know. It it at the end it's just like the popular kids and I made a joke in Contreras Corner that why must we always demonize the, the pretty girls and, and the jocks and whatever? But that's because the way it works out is, you know, when you're popular and you're good looking and you're talented, that can go to your head, which can make you cruel. <laughs> so I, I I could relate somewhat to it. I, I, I definitely got it. Did you feel like the depiction was not quite right? So I have kind of like a, a weird tale about um, when I was nearing the end of my freshman year of high school, uh, my family moved from Waterville, Ohio to Kyle, Texas. And in the process, I went from a high school that was like a thousand students to, um, so I had the option of going to Hayes high school, which was what I was used to, or they had the alternative learning center, which was the Academy at Hayes, which was like a self-based curriculum and uh, a lot of room for like, um, clubs and, so I got to be like a student council member and stuff. But anyway, so I chose that. So my last three years of high school were fantastic. And like I I really enjoyed it. But fifth, sixth, seventh, and my freshman year of high school were just fucking awful. And so I, I could relate to that. My eighth grade year, I just stopped giving a shit and like I had a junior high where we which junior high was I believe sixth seventh and eighth or just seventh and eighth but so at that point I was the the eldest there I was part of the eldest class and I had my friends and like so I I was never a good student so the social aspect was always big and it was always really lacking and I was not a popular kid and I was bullied pretty regularly so like yeah I see this and like I remember my freshman year and being bullied and I watched this and it made me so thankful for moving at the time. I hated it. It, it was a really weird bout of introspection that I had watching this movie um, because I just thought like, man, if I fucking had st if we had stayed there, I would have been fucking miserable going through three more years at that school just being, you know out of place and not really having a, a crowd and feeling lesser than. And um, so watching this, I, I could kind of relate. And then also like um, it would like create a projection of what my future could have been. 
And I feel like a lot of why I've ended up better and more socially adjusted as I have, because I had that opportunity to switch and go to a, a school that was more catered to what helped me. So going th- watching this movie, it was a, a weird bout of introspection at the same time to the specifics of the movie. Yeah, I could definitely relate with it. Like you were Martha. God. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I, uh, yeah, one of the popular girls did trick me into thinking that a girl had a crush on me and I made a fool of what myself like in that movie. Bitch. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope she's overweight and has six kids and hates her life right now. Um, <laughs> I, I, as you were talking about it, I, I, I was thinking, I was doing the, I made this joke before, but I, I was doing the, which character of Heather's are you, BuzzFeed quiz, and uh, <laughs> I I did see, or I can see some echoes of the Winona Ryder character in my high school experience, in the sense of being in that position where you may be silently complicit to things that are not cool. But mm-hmm. you're like, I'm not going to say anything because I don't really, I don't want to put my own position in danger, right? It's like, I was not picked on, but as an adult, there are things that I remember about my high school years where I wish I'd had the balls to just interfere and go like, okay, yep. stop, this is yep. not cool, right? And I never did, like, I never picked on anyone, but I remember just being a bystander. And of course, you know, you, you can only... It's not like I torture myself thinking about these things, you know, your brain when you're like 12, 13, 14, 15 is very different than your brain when you're like an adult. But but if I could go back in time, I would just interfere. And because when you're an adult, you get that perspective of like, oh, being okay or staying out of the radar of like, you know, the people that are picking on, on others is maybe not as important as standing up for the people that are being picked on. Yeah, that's kind of like, you know, the Winona Ryder arc or one of the aspects of her character here is that, you know, she's with the with the popular girls and she is fed up <laughs> of yeah. being mean and, you know, having to play by the rules. So, yeah, to put a bow on that discussion, I think this is possibly one of the weirder uh, real talks we've ever done in terms the of realist. just like th- this has been, yeah. If you want an insight to us, this is it. But I was trying to really think about it, like my dealings personally with suicide and watching this and just the I, putting myself back in that position. And like I said, it made me really grateful of uh, the life experience and the shift that I did get to have. But also, I, I don't know, I think, you know, this movie's 30 years old and the sensationalizing of youth suicide. And it's like, yeah, logistically speaking, scientifically speaking, your brain doesn't stop developing until you're like 25. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, like, I don't, I don't, not to speak for you or anyone else listening, there's, uh, I've always thought there's like always teenagers think like, well, if I just kill myself, then I'd be out of this. And it seems like this movie does a really good job of showing how that is sensationalized and it's evolved now because we've had people that, you know, like kill themselves on their social media pages. Mm-hmm. And instead of like uh, address, uh, I'm laughing cause I'm uncomfortable, but instead of addressing the real issues and roots behind it, it's more about like, Oh, can you believe that this happened? And uh, we have to celebrate their life and have to uh, bring to the forefront, the dangers of spending too much time doing this or doing that mm-hmm. or, it was weird. It's one of these movies that we've talked about uh, 
a lot in the summer of Winona, oddly enough, like with um, the Crucible and um, shit. What did we just do recently? The idea of these movies that are so dated, but still have so much relevancy today and show you like, man, people still don't really get what the fucking point is. Edward Scissorhands, maybe? I believe so. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That that was it. Yeah. It was but, not Homefront. N- well, that's just a great movie. But uh, <laughs> I think that that's a good bringing it up, doing those uh, as we have closely one another to one another. It shows like the whole art discussion we had earlier. Yeah, art can just be this really stupid shit that I'm going to drink six beers and eat a cheeseburger when I watch it. Or it can be these things that I watch and they really like open up these you know my schema and these envelopes that i haven't opened in years and have me thinking and wondering about shit and uh not lamenting but you know just kind of uh, reminiscing and this was definitely a fascinating one to do that i i think i personally i think mean girls is a better version of this like getting back to actually discussing the movie and like the matter at hand. I I've, having seen Jawbreaker, having seen this, having seen Mean Girls and the things that tries to accomplish, I, I think Mean Girls succeeds resoundingly. Whereas this, there's some failings to it. Obviously, Mean Girls doesn't have some of the really intense uh, violence and the themes of death, frankly, that yeah. this movie does. But it, I feel what they try to do in that movie is very similar to this. It's paralleled. And I feel that movie does a better job of it because I think my main thing is with this movie, it loses its focus in the last 20 minutes. It completely goes off the rails and uh, throwing it back to you. I know this has probably been the least we've actually focused on a movie since we've, since we started this, but I, I did want to get your thoughts. My opinion being, obviously I really enjoyed a lot of the movie, but I feel it completely goes off the rails in the last 20 minutes. Um, I think it does. I don't know about completely. I, I think that the movie does such a good job of being good <laughs> before it gets to the end that I, it, it would have been, it had to try harder to completely turn for, for me to turn on it all the way. But yeah, that, that that final sequence, I mean, the escalation is there as far as, you know, you see the, the, the conflict between Winona and Christian Slater increase, get worse and worse. And uh, it's I can see the logic in it. I, I can follow the, the the flow of the story, but it just felt like it turned into a, a, a different movie. It, like we said in Contrarian's Corner, it turns to an action movie kind of, and it just feels like it's nowhere near as smart as I felt the rest of the movie is. It becomes a cliche, like literally that line about like, can I see your hall pass? I, I audibly said what when she said that, because <laughs> it's exactly what we were talking about in contrarian's corner. It feels like it just becomes an action movie of the time. And it's like, uh, you're betraying everything that set this up. Yeah. And you know, if you took away the action component of, of that final act of the, of the third act and the climax if it was just about if they leaned more into comedy and less into action and it's just that oh how crazy it is that the next step in christian slater's road towards lunacy is that he's going to <laughs> blow everybody up and then winona finds a way to stop it that doesn't require it to be a, a set piece of you know gunshots and and fistfights and whatever instead it's just 
I don't know, she does like something clever and he ends up blowing himself up anyway. I think that's still, you, you know, if you could remove all the action stuff and yet somehow arrive at that very last moment where it's just them facing each other and Christian Slater blowing himself up and her just lighting a cigarette, I could kind of like see it working. But I, the way they have it right now, it's it's not, yeah, it feels like it suddenly dumbs down what was going on. But everything that goes on before is just so clever. I, I really like the dialogue. I now that we're in real talk, I don't mind the the occasional uh I guess foray into Diablo Cody speak, even though technically, <laughs> you know, this is before that, so it, it was a precursor, but I, I, I don't just, mind it either. I was that was a lot of the like me pushing a narrative for Contrarian's Corner. <laughs> I think it makes a lot more sense. Like the US uh fucking A today, that line, like that makes a lot more sense in the confines of this movie than like the Juno honest to blog like, <laughs> ridiculousness because they, they go out of their way in this movie to establish they're the MTV generation and, you know, yeah. diet Coke and Taco Bell and shit. So yeah, not to derail you there, but yeah, no, no, no. Just I wanted to throw my two cents. I like the way they talk. I like the dialogue. I think that's one of the movie's strengths uh, along with when a writer's performance, you know, she can, she can pull off that dialogue. And I think that the movie is really funny early on. Partly because of the dialogue, partly just because of, you know, the performance and, you know, the, the little things. It's not doing anything new at first when it's setting up the the characters, but it's being, it's very well paced for a comedy. It kind of loses yeah. a little bit of it whenever it gets a little too uh, too serious. That might be just me, like, as far as preference. There's that moment uh, when they're having the the funeral for the two jocks and uh, when our writer and uh, Christian Slater are laughing while they're at the funeral. And then she sees, I guess, one of the guy's little sister. And she turns and looks at her. And Winona sobers up. And she's like, oh, shit. I just killed somebody that has, uh, you know, had a sibling. That that little girl, you know, did not deserve this pain or whatever. And so yeah. as an isolated moment, I'm like, that's cool. That's like, that's powerful even. But as a moment in the middle of this comedy, kind of took me away from it. And it's kind of the, the that kind of stuff is what happens every now and then that I I don't think works all the way. Like I mentioned the the suicide attempt uh, a little bit ago when uh, Heather number three tries to kill herself and when I stops her and that's there's just these moments in the movie where it feels like it puts the comedy in the back burner and it decides that it's gonna have a serious moment to kind of remind us that this is not to be uh, taken lightly, you know, suicide and and death and all the stuff. And it's like, I appreciated the, the uh, I guess, moral impulse to do that. But I also felt like it kind of got in the way of the comedy. It got just like, we've, we've, we've seen much worse than this in our contrarians run and just <laughs> regular life. But it, I felt like it got a little too preachy at times. And that yeah. got also got in the way. But do I care a lot about that? Not too much because i also think that it's uh all the stuff that works is so good i don't know what i was expecting with heathers but i did not expect another entry in the summer of winona that was gonna be about a super quotable winona writer i thought that we'd already had that nailed with uh reality bites <laughs> and that was it for me and uh, so that was quite a joy and i've watched it twice and you know what second time around that ending doesn't go down any easier <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty rough. The, um, the disappointment is not there anymore because you know what's coming. But I was still underwhelmed. I I it didn't it didn't do it for me. We'll do a buckshot here to to finish out the episode before we get to plugs. Christian Slater, thoughts? He's all right. He's not. Yeah. I, I, he's because it's Christian Slater. I think I got more out of it because it's just so funny to see a young Christian Slater just trying so hard to be cool. But I was not kidding. Concerns Corner. I think Winona is too good for him in this movie. He's not. Yeah. He's not her match. I, I don't know if that's just uh you know the acting ability at the time. Uh, you know, because he seems to be trying so hard and she doesn't. She's just like, this is just who I am. Or or is it just that maybe the way the, the characters and the story is written? I said in Contrast Quarter, you know, she's sort of humble bragging about how smart she is. And and you believe that she's smart because you see her kind of be very self-aware in her inner monologue about what's going on. And yet, you know, you, you needed to try harder to sell me that Christian Slater would really have her under his spell for so long. I can't believe that somebody that is apparently as smart as the Winona Ryder character as Veronica would fall for Christian Slater's bullshit for so long. Uh, yeah, I, I I think he's fine. I, I've said this on the podcast before. If you ever want to see Christian Slater's career-defining performance, you need to watch Very Bad Things from 1998. He's unreal in that movie. And here it's like we and I were texting. He's never been more Christian Slater than he is in this movie he's it's it's to the point of almost caricature but he gets a lot of really good lines and really good moments uh, he does and as kind of off base as a lot of it is it's never to the point where it takes me out of the movie i'll be like eh, you're, you're trying a bit hard there old slate but it, it never <laughs> like takes me completely out um winona ryder I think, like I said, this to me is one of her less winona e performances. And I think, uh, as I said a little bit earlier, it's the proverbial mold, uh, the ball of clay. I think here she just exudes potential in so many aspects and is really good. Some of the, like the parts where I would complain about what she's doing would fall way back more on the writing than the actual her acting. I, I honestly think this is one of my more uh, favorite performances that uh, I've seen in the summer of Winona. Do you think uh, Winona Ryder, 1989 uh, Winona Ryder could have pulled off a line like honest to blog or is that just unsalvageable? Uh, it's yeah, that no one can pull it off. <laughs> it's um, garbage day or uh, Kelly Rowland's monologue in Freddy versus Jason. Uh, like it's just there's no one that could pull it off hardest laugh in the movie when they're writing the suicide note for the first heather and she tells uh christian slater heather wouldn't use the word myriad i I laughed really hard at that and then secondly because they set the joke up of uh when they plan all the quote-unquote gay evidence on the two jocks and christian slater's like he's like mineral water that they'll know they're gay this way and then when the cops see him and they're like, they're gay. It's like, how do you know? And then he just holds up the mineral water. Like it's so stupid, but God, I laughed so hard at that. That's definitely one of the hardest for sure. I was about to say that the, the whole thing with the mineral water is just perfect setup and payoff. Uh, because it's that's like comedy writing one Oh one. Yeah. Just like setting up this ridiculous thing. And then it pays off like 
within five minutes. I wish I I know I laughed a lot. I can't think of anything. If I do, I'll I'll interrupt you and uh <laughs> and I'll let you know. But I just know a lot of the stuff that uh, the Winona writer said. Even if it didn't make me laugh out loud, it made me uh, just like smile and go like, fuck yeah, this is good. Like when she's uh, she's at the college party and she tells uh, the guys like, I just want to get laid. And she goes, well, I have a speech that for for people that want more than I want to give. And it's like, you know, that he interrupts her and she's like, you don't deserve my speech or you don't deserve my fucking speech. And she walks off. <laughs> I just it's just so funny. <laughs> it's I mean, it's all on the delivery and the way that they build up to that. But it's. It's good. And then I texted you. Uh, it might be the way that she delivers it, but lick it up, baby, lick it up. It's just, I don't know. It just feels so uh, iconic, even though this is the first time I've heard it, you know, <laughs> but it's just like, how the, how is this line not something that I've, that's quoted all the time when people talk about, you know, maybe it doesn't. I just, it always went over my head, but it's not even crucial to the story. It's just like a comment on what uh, the other Heather is saying. I know this. we've tackled this a bit differently than we do with the other ones, but it's now time for the, the rating. I think I'm going to go with a B-. There are definitely things that could be improved to push it to that next echelon, but for the good ideas that are here and the really sharp writing and considering their other contribution was Hudson Hawk, I think the, the <laughs> duo here of uh, Lehman Daniel and Waters. Waters. Yeah, I think they... The stars aligned, and the best they could do here was a B minus. But I think it's uh, it's above average, so that's that's why I'm going to give it the rating I do. Um, you know what else made me laugh really hard? The second time that? that they do the second time they do the interaction uh, between Winona and her parents, where the dad will say, will wonder out loud, "Why do I do this?" And then she says, "Because you're an idiot." And then he goes, "Oh yeah, that's right." And then the mom goes, "You too." And then when a writer eats something, then she's like, "Well, this pate is great, but I have to go do something." You know. So the first time it's just like, "Oh, that's cute." And then the second time it happens is right before she goes to uh, to someone's funeral, either Heather's funeral or the Jocks's uh, funeral. And yeah, uh, I got a motor. It, she says something like that. Yeah, just seeing it play out pretty much the exact same way as before and it ends with like oh i gotta i gotta jet uh because i have a funeral to catch or something it just it just made me laugh i don't know it's just clever i i give it four stars i the amount of satisfaction i got from watching it and the just like the visual inventiveness too i love the opening it's it threw me off because you know it's just them playing croquet and then you realize at the end it, the payoff is that she's the big reveal is that when her writer is buried and it's just they're aiming yeah, at her head. It's her head. And then yeah. she goes, Dear diary. That's just so good. I so yeah, four stars. I I have issues with it, but it's still a really good movie. And I yeah, I mean I would recommend it to anybody that's a fan of Winona Ryder or a, a a fan of those movies that we've been referencing, you know, Mean Girls, Clueless, uh, most high school movies, but this one has like this one has teeth. So I think Jawbreaker is a good movie. I, I definitely need to watch it. I say low 120 days of Sodom. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> the extreme always seems to make an impression. Moving into plugs. As always, we want to give a shout out to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks, as well as have been so kind to provide supplemental music for the summer of Winona. Be sure to head over to the festive to satiate any and all festive years needs. Uh, our friend Hans Rothgieser, he is a podcaster, a novelist, an economist, 
All of that comes together in his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. He's also obviously an artist. He did our logo. We can do logos, comics, whatever you want. Just contact him uh, at Mildemonios on Twitter, mildemonios at hotmail.com. Uh, you can listen to his podcast, Nación Combi and Marginal. Those are in Spanish. One's about Peruvian current affairs. The other one's about economy in Spanish. Those are available in every podcatcher. He also has a podcast in English uh, called Living in Peru. That's about immigrants to Peru. You can find that one on iVox. And has become customary. want to give a thank you to the wonderful Zoe Perez for managing our social media game. Uh, Julio pretty much controls the, the Twitter front, but Zoe... Uh, taking control of our Instagram and working towards revamping our Facebook page. Greatly appreciated, Miss Perez. Keep up the good work. Did you say a cherry or Coke slushy? Julio, do you recall months ago when I first explained to you about uh, Crystal Lake Memories, that comprehensive documentary on Friday the 13th? Yes. Yes, I do. So, come to find out, lo and behold, as is proven evident, there was also one made about Nightmare on Elm Street called Never Sleep Again. And I actually, because I found it for a good price, I got the, the double feature, the four disc set on Blu-ray on Amazon for about 20 bucks. And as we've discussed, we did uh, the original, the remake, and uh, New Nightmare. I definitely prefer Friday the 13th's franchise to Nightmare on Elm Street. However... I might have liked the Never Sleep Again documentary better than Crystal Lake Memories. It was uh, very fascinating. And the, the the big differences, Friday the 13th made a lot of money for Paramount. Uh-huh. I made a lot of money. New Line Cinema would not have existed if it wasn't for <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. So The house that Freddy built. Exactly. That's the last chapter of the documentary. Aww. They explain, they go through that. And um so it makes that part of it interesting, more interesting, because they go over like all the movies that New Line did that won Oscars and made like a billion dollars and shit like this. Um, and they have, with the exception of Johnny Depp, much like with the Crystal Lake memories, Kevin Bacon didn't come back to do a part for the documentary. So Johnny Depp's not in there. They do have a deleted scene from Johnny Depp that I'd never seen before uh, in that. But Rennie Harlan directed part four. And that was like his first break. That was his big break that got him the projects that he got after that. And he took a very big part in the documentary, which was really interesting because he's like a fucking shoot millionaire. And uh, and he's just still married to uh, Gina Davis. I don't believe she make a cameo. She she was not in the background telling him to take out the trash. Uh, (laughs) But he's just very honest. And he he talks about and it's like you've watched enough documentaries, especially about film, to know when someone's being genuine and when they're not. And like he's so genuine. He's like, if it wasn't for Nightmare on Elm Street, I would have had no career. It's like New Line gave me the shot to make this movie, and it did really well, and that's why I am where I am today. And of course, you have Robert England and all the other actors. And it, I, I'm fairly positive it was made by the same team that made the Friday the Thirteenth documentary because it ends the same way. In the when the credits are rolling for the documentary, they have all the actors they brought back reciting one of their lines from the, oh. the movie. It's it's really cool. Does it go all but, the way to the to the remake? It does not. It treats Ooh. the universe as though the remake doesn't happen. <laughs> and but it does do ta- uh, it, new nightmare. It does new nightmare, and it, it ends at Freddy versus Jason. Okay, and then they and they have God bless them, Ronnie. You on there just being 
brutally blunt about how he did not give a shit about either franchise and he didn't like he was just like yeah i'll do this movie to get paid and he's like and then all these people had these wild expectations for it and i was just like whatever and it also does because we talked about in the episodes we did about the original and the remake the whole freddy's backstory element yeah the child molestation thing and they talk about a lot of what we talked about they talked about how when they leaned into it too hard, it made it really uncomfortable to watch and like how it was a weird element of the story. And Wes Craven is a constant through it. It was before Wes Craven passed. And um, he talks about too, like he always just thought he wrote the one movie. He's like, mm-hmm. this is just how I see it. And that's what had happened. And when they added on to it, that's why he came back to do new nightmare. He's like, well, I can do this modern spin on it. But I think that's probably my favorite part is the last thing the last like talking head of it is Wes Craven says, I imagine when I die somewhere in my obituary, it'll say invented Freddy Krueger. And then that's when it like fades away and it's really good. And again, for like, you know, I always talk about as silly as it is to get emotional about things like slasher movies and pro wrestling. Like I do, it's uh, it kind of validates it because it's so well made and it shows what these things mean to people and what this franchise means to people. And it's it did the ultimate task that I thought was undoable and that it's motivated me to revisit the entire franchise. So <laughs> we will see how that goes. Will you go past the documentary and into the remake one more time? No. Once no. more into no. the fray, Alex? Nope. nope. We did it. It's As Milhouse <laughs> said, is we did it. It's done. That was one because we were talking about last week about movies that like we hated that we did. And I was I, the whole week since I've been like reflecting upon like. And that's one of the movies we have done that I, you could not pay me to go back and watch again is the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Such a good episode, though. It led to such an interesting discussion. It did. Doesn't mean <laughs> that I want to watch the movie ever again, but, you know. I see you know your convenience speak pretty well. I have a whole bunch of things to plug because uh, I have a whole bunch of things to plug. It happens sometimes. You gotta go rapid fire. First and foremost, our friend Corey Ari. He wrote this movie, and now there's an Indiegogo crowdfunding for it. It's called Wages of Sin. If you like Corey, like we do, you might like him because he uh, did that uh, Rob Zombie episode uh, with us a while ago. He also sent us a clip for uh, Edward Scissorhands. All around great guy. Maybe you're a fan of his uh, YouTube channel. Anyway, go to Indiegogo, Wages of Sin. That's uh, the name of the feature. Just, I've read the script. It's cool. I'll put the link on the show notes. Next. Excellent. I recorded a guest spot uh, with the guys from For Your Reference, OT and KT. You've also heard them. They sent us a clip for uh, Reality Bites. We talked about Amelie, the French movie. The For Your Reference peeps, they wanted. Uh, they asked me which movie I wanted to do with them, and that was, that was my suggestion. It's a very interesting conversation because... Uh, Tiny spoiler, they did not care for it anywhere near as much as I do. So we had a solid back and forth over the merits and the demerits of Emily on their show. It should be out now. Go to For Your Reference and uh, check out their, their feed, and I'll be there. The Emily episode. friends and potential lovers have you ever felt so passionately after watching a tv show or a movie but not have a pal to share it with allow us the honor of keeping you company with our weekly podcast for your reference with your hosts katie and ot 
Each episode, we break down our hot takes that you'll either ardently agree or vehemently disagree with, like subs versus dubs. How important is a cohesive narrative? What's with the popularity of the relatable villain? Is it possible to be truly objective in spite of your own experiences? And most importantly, are you getting a clue and which direction is it pointing? Come on now, it's pointing towards for your reference. That's a great reference. If you've got a little room in your rotation for some salacious frivolity, check out for your reference wherever you listen to podcasts. So that was our promo from For Your Reference. Finally, another shout out to another podcast, Austin based, the guys from Franchise Killer. And Alex, I texted you sometime last week. And I said, hey, do you remember? Does the name David Schmitzer sound familiar? And yes. <laughs> yes. I don't know. The world, it's a small, small world, as uh, people at uh, Disney like to say. There's a Facebook group for Austin podcasters, and I saw David Schmitzer post about his podcast there. And I was like, you sound like somebody I work with. And lo and behold, he is. Uh, he listened to our podcast, and uh, he said, man, I did not, uh, how crazy it is. I listened to you and Alex talk about this movie, and it was great. So that led me to believe that we knew him back when, uh, at least when you were an employee, yeah. Because he referred to you as Alex. He did not say Mr. Mattis. Oh, okay. Or maybe now that, you know, it's been so long, he, he feels very comfortable for, being I casual. I forgot that at one point in time, there were people that were paid to work that were told to call me Mr. Mattis. Uh, Jesus Christ. It might happen again if you're not careful. Uh, well, anyway, fran- franchise killer. Don't threaten me with a bad time. <laughs> uh, franchise killer. Listen to them. They, their show is about franchise, movie franchises, what worked on each entry, what didn't work, what killed the franchise if it's dead, what might kill it if it hasn't quite died yet. Um, a lot of fun. I listened to a couple of their episodes. <laughs> Jackie Earl Haley as the main character will kill it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I've been moved around all my life. What a loaded episode of The Contrarians. What a, <laughs> a complete emotional roller coaster we've been on. I think that's one of the uh, realer real talks, as you said, and... A fitting way to conclude the summer of Winona. Yes. Coming up next, that's the the, the real uh, the real wrap up. <laughs> Cliffhanger, starring Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> so the Winonies are on deck. Yes, uh, as you may have surmised from what I said, like we we haven't quite nailed the categories yet. I mean, we, there's there's mm-hmm. just the basics. We know, you know. Best Winona. I mean, best Winona, Winona performance. We're doing worse. Did we do worse for Travolta? Yeah, we did. Was an embarrassment of riches. Yeah. Uh, so best and worst, and then we'll do film, and then supporting character, uh, supporting actor, yeah. supporting actress. Like I said, yeah. I would just like to find an equivalent, something like we did with Travolta. We did the the Travolta Taco Bell menu and the Travolta penises. Uh, I would like to come up with something for the Winonis that is, uh, you know, a little offbeat like that. We'll, we'll come up with something. I, I think that the idea of uh, I don't know if it's like ranking the boyfriends could be something or it could be just like which Winona character would you actually date? Yeah. If you were age appropriate. Uh, yes, that's a that's a big asterisk. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll mull it over and we'll uh, before we record, we'll drop it on uh, our Twitter account. And then very much looking forward to the project we have uh, coming in September and October. It's, it's uh, Alex's uh, revenge on me yes. for having him uh, Oh, it's not revenge. For making you watch Little Women. (laughs) It's a gift. You're going to be thanking me when it's all said and done. Uh, But we thank each and every one of y'all for joining us through the summer of Winona. 
And as always, we thank each and every one of you for tuning into The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. That summer of 1999, back when you blew my mind, and you told me secrets in the dark, I'm just fine, things are asking, I just can't quite keep high.